Hi, this is Madria Steven with the Working with Woes podcast, and uh, it's been a while. I've done a lot of learning. There'll be some future podcasts coming out about these things that I've learned about co-regulation and uh, emotional management, and also returning to your dreams once they've been destroyed by life. Um, I'm very, very lucky to have this guest today. Her name is Gerlinda Metz, and I I met her briefly years ago at the University of Lethbridge, um, and we had a brief conversation about resilience, and I have not forgotten it, so I'm very fortunate to have her here now, years later, and I will let her tell you about some of the work that she does uh, around it, how she got into the career, and hi. <laughs> Hi, Madria. Thank you so much for the invitation to speak with you today. Yes, no problem. I'm happy that it worked and so quickly too. So I'm very happy. Thank you for being here. So um, just share with the listeners like what you do. And if you want to share just kind of how you got there professionally and maybe a little bit of a personal touch if you want. Thank you, Madria. (laughs) Sure. (laughs) I took cut a long story short. Um, I'm a professor of neuroscience and a board of governors research chair right now, and I study stress and I'm working really hard in trying to understand better what resilience is and how we can build it in vulnerable populations. And the reason why I got interested in this is that throughout my career, my background is biology, but I got into behavioral neuroscience quite early in my studies as an undergraduate student. And I started to look at various different species, animals, humans, and realized that stress is a very important factor to affect behavior. But I also got involved very heavily in trying to understand Um, and researching recovery from brain injury. And there again, I noticed that stress is a very important factor to influence how we recover well and how quickly we recover and bounce back from a brain injury. And I noticed that this is very underappreciated in in the clinical environment. As a researcher, I can study all this really well in the laboratory, but I see that in patient populations, This is usually not taken into account if I go see a physician or if I have um, a critical injury or a chronic disease and I go to hospital, usually there's, it's a very busy environment and physicians are stretched very thin, all healthcare professionals are right now and they are stressed themselves and patients are stressed and we had the pandemic put another layer of urgent needs on the system, the healthcare system. So stress is really everywhere. It is affecting not only patients and affecting their recovery from a disease or health condition, but it's also affecting healthcare personnel. And I see that really to, this sounds like a very gloomy message to talk (laughs) about stress. And it seems like hopelessness, hopeless because we're all exposed to so much stress. But to turn it around, I wanted to really take another spin on the story and look at the positive notes because there are so many of us who have resilience. And how come there are some people who deal better with stress than others? And this made me really curious. So actually working on stress for, oh my goodness, 25 years or so, (laughs) um, or even more, 
<laughs> time passes quickly when you do what you enjoy. And first of all, I was always stressed myself and I wanted to understand better what's happening. And so I'm personally motivated to study stress, but I also want to know how we can build resilience. And so this is more of a turn that research has taken more recently over the past years. And I think the pandemic yet again has really highlighted the need that we need to investigate resilience and understand what it is because this has really fallen off the radar screen for all the stress research many scientists around the world did for so many decades, starting with Hans Selye 80 years ago, I would say. So the stress field has focused a lot on the negative aspects of stress and chronic stress and health complications. And if we open the newspaper or listen to any media of any day, usually stress is, comes with a very negative aspect. So it's actually not always negative. And to start with stress in itself, I think we wanted to understand also what are the positives about stress. And then also using that to help build resilience as well. So not overcoming just the negative aspects that we often associated with stress in the past and present, but also understanding what is good about stress, because that will really help um, make us less afraid of tackling and talking about this topic. Yeah, I saw a video on YouTube. It made me think because an elk had been attacked by a cheetah, I think, in the safari or something like that, wherever those animals live freely. <laughs> and somebody had been able to film it. And so what happened is the four cloven hoofed animal was grazing by a tree and this cougar or cheetah, sorry, it was a cheetah, not a cougar. Cougars are Canadian. It was a cheetah. It came and it was stalking the animal and it did its pounce in the, the you know, noise that it does when it strikes. Now, cougars also do that. Just, just a fun fact there. So the cheetah had taken the animal down, basically, and the gazelle, not an elk, also Canadian, but a gazelle is not. Um, so a gazelle, it kind of froze and it went numb. So at first it was awake. And then it just went like limp, but its eyes were open. And so the cheetah was like batting its face, you know, basically like sniffing its nose, giving like a light little nibble. And then it lost interest because it wants the chase and the pursuit. And, uh, you know, it wants to work for its dinner, essentially. So this one would play dead like an opossum. <laughs> and it worked. The cheetah lost interest, wandered away, and the gazelle laid there for you know, a little bit, making sure that the cheetah went away. And then it got up and it shook for, I don't know, a while. And then it moseyed on its life. But my question is, how come the gazelle doesn't seem to carry the trauma of having its life in danger? It just shook it off, processed it and moseyed on. Wow, that to me is resilience. So when I took this brain story course through the family wellness program, in Alberta, it's free, it's online. I actually kind of realized with that video and then with their definition that resilience is seems to be to me the ability to maintain positive neural structures despite having multiple adverse circumstances. So I'm wondering if you could kind of define 
resilience according to your work and research, and then sort of describe resilience across the lifespan. So for instance, what does it look like in crisis? Um, Is it always healthy? Is it more likely to be developed in childhood? Can an adult who had a really shitty life uh, suddenly develop it at the age of 40? How malleable is it? And what does it look like? Yeah, yeah. Thank you so much. Um, This is a great question. And I think um, everyone's got a little bit of a different understanding or definition of resilience too, based on our experiences. And even researchers, I think, right now don't have a very good definition that encompasses all the different responses that resilience can entail, like physiological responses of our body and the stress response, dealing with the stress response, the psychological layer, the the cognitive layer of processing stress and and building resilience and and then the environmental aspects that come along with that because we interact. It's not just the environment having an impact on ourselves, but we also give back to the environment and influence and influence it and make it our own so this is a reciprocal relationship that we have with the environment and that also determines our resilience and we can talk more about all these aspects but in terms of a definition I think generally we all assume this is like a bouncing back to to be back to normal or close as close to normal as possible to where we were before we experienced the stress it's like pushing a a rubber ball or a memory foam piece Mm. and so it takes a while to reshape and take the original shape after we've pressed it Um, but it will eventually happen and that's what um, would be in in some way our resilience but it can take so many different shapes and forms and since you're talking about your own experiences what really inspired me to be interested in that as my family history because you know that you hear my accent I'm from Germany and mm-hmm. my family um, was my mother's family in particular was very exposed to the world war uh, tragedies in 1945 and um, they've lost everything they were forced out from their home they were homelessness homeless for 15 years they were starving, almost dying. They were exposed to extreme violence. And they haven't had any place they could call home for probably 15 years. People don't realize how long the consequences of the Second World War took for people in Germany to rebuild the country. And of course, there are so many different aspects around that. But usually it was a taboo to talk about the suffering that the German people themselves had experienced because they were usually the um, the aggressors and um, Germans were not allowed to talk about their own problems and complications and losses. And so they were in alley bombings, they were cities that were completely erased and they were um, like we study right now, we work with the city of Pforzheim that lost a third of its population in the 1945 bombing. And we are here for the first time doing a 
study of transgenerational stress in a human population in a very systematic way. We have a good understanding of transgenerational stresses based on studies like the Dutch Femen birth cohort led by Tessa Roseboom out of Amsterdam, where there was a caloric restriction because they were severely hungry for um, almost a year and, and beyond as well, because they suffered the traumatic experiences of the Second World War as well. And there's also other studies of nutritional um, and dietary restrictions from Sweden and various other places. But the systematic study about stress and how that affects us and programs us across generations doesn't yet really exist in, in the literature in a very systematic way. Do you think that part of intergenerational stress and stuff like that could have to do with alleles in the brain? Because you know how they're like those little kind of rod shaped things that can like turn on or off or partly on or off these cells and they do affect kind of what's passed down like they can change but do you think it has to do with that so what we understand and here actually experimental evidence is really helpful because we cannot study five generations of humans in in real life um there's been a lot of evidence from animal studies and we realized that they're Factors that are not involving our DNA, which is kind of hardwired, but it involves what we call epigenetic influences. That means there are factors that switch on and off which genes are being expressed, like a library where you take out some books and you read them, and then you put them back and you take out another book and read it. And so epigenetic um, modifications can help us more rapidly adjust and get habituated to a certain environment and deal with long-term stressors as well. So this is not involving the changes in DNA sequence that we usually see in evolution, but it's a more rapid change that will allow us to adapt more quickly to stressors in our environment. So this is very beneficial. And we understand that through these studies that actually resilience and vulnerability to stress can be passed down from one generation to the next. And it is actually thought to, for example, if mom experiences certain stressors during her pregnancy, she will let her child know her developing baby in the womb that this is a stressful environment. And that the baby should better be adapted to these stressors by certain metabolic functions, cellular functions, behavioral functions. And so this really helps the baby to survive better after he or she is born into the stressful world. Um, however, we also understand that this comes at a cost right now because at a younger age, we might be better adapted, but you have to imagine that being in a stressful environment and even being well adapted, kind of what we call resilient, um, might come at an expense later on in life because you're constantly running on a high, high engine gear or you're really running on, on more energy needs than if there was no stressful environment. And when this person 
um, is growing older, there might be a higher risk of disease because you're constantly running on high energy needs. And you have to make sure that you're keeping a balance and you recharge your batteries that tend to run empty more easily. And we see that there is a price that when we age, we get older, that we get diseases coming on board earlier than if we were not exposed to stressors, even in our ancestors. So lifetime stressors and the stress of early generations are having these effects. And this possibly explains a lot of the diseases that we see in human populations that often we cannot explain why they are there, like diabetes or accelerated aging, earlier aging, um, earlier cognitive loss, memory loss, um, cardiovascular disease. We see all this coming on board, even kidney function and so on. So this could explain why some individuals have diseases, age-associated diseases earlier in life than others. Mm -hmm. And that had made me really curious and led to probably the largest um, animal or red, red study in the lab because we wanted yeah. to look at this across generations. And it has, a, excuse me, it has a lot of value for better understanding what health risk we are encountering or expecting as a human population. And we are all along this grayscale. There's no one who is completely exempt from these. We all had certain ancestral baggages here and we cannot control that. That's our ancestors that have experienced enormous stress. Uh, I would say for us in North America, we had not experienced like the erasure of entire cities or a severe period of hunger here in the youngest history for the Caucasian population that um, we're very lucky uh, but we still have diseases of aging and we need to understand that better and here again I think this research has made me so well aware and appreciative of the effects that we we see a lot in our First Nations populations because they're highly vulnerable. They had gone through ancestral trauma, even, even several generations of trauma going through the residential school system, violence, discrimination, um, in so many ways. And this is really, we have to understand that this is a very severe influence. We have to learn better of understanding the individual risks, the personal risks, and trying to find interventions then by knowing who's at risk, um, to find interventions early in life to support them in building better resilience. And that's really what it's about. We want to know who is more vulnerable to certain health complications. How can we know who's at risk? And then using that knowledge to develop interventions to help those in greater need. And I feel very passionate about that. <laughs> and I think we really need more resources to study that because this is a very complex topic. And I wish there was more funding to support this kind of research that is so timely now. Agreed. Would you say that 
if a person had been born into a situation where there was no real trepidation, like, I don't know if their worst thing was a paper cut in grade six or something, you know, something like that, which some people do have, I would say less and less people over time, but they're still out there. Would they have a harder time bouncing back, do you think? Or would they have a, a faster rate of bouncing back? And the reason why I ask is because talking about the fulcrum. So the fulcrum is basically the little triangle part that would balance a beam if you were to make a teeter-totter. And um, so the teeter-totter is you have one kid on one side and the other end goes in the air. You put another kid on the other side and they could balance and then they bounce back and forth. In um, this brain story course, that video that I really, really liked, uh, module 19, video one, for any listeners out there who want to see it, I loved it. There is discussion of that sort of balance beam. And if you have big negatives, um, like I do, I have huge, huge negatives across my entire formative years and well into my adult years as well. You know, the little positives such as getting a text um, just don't don't even have an impact because as it said in the video, those negatives, as they accumulate, the positives have less and less of an effect because that fulcrum, that little triangle is moved over to the side to balance the negativity so that it has more of an impact. So the negatives are resounding. And as each one is added, it has a bigger ripple and all that stuff. So I'm wondering if people who are in, you know, sort of consistently, you know how some people kind of say like, I just have bad luck all the time or, oh, well, this is my story or whatever. They just sort of concede to the fact of this terrible luck following them around. But I'm wondering, would it be easier if somebody has grown up with those positives and the fulcrum's more on the side of the positives to be able to bounce back as an adult who went through, say some, let's say somebody had a really secure childhood, all their needs were met socially with good serve and return with their parents, yada, yada. So let's say the age of 28, they, they, so their brain is matured or let's actually bump it up. Let's say the age of 40. So their brain is definitely done because there's talk of it developing until you're 25, talk of it developing until you're 35. So let's say the age of 40, good, solid, done brain developing for the most part. So they get divorced and they, there's a fire and they lose their home and then their work breaks the contract and they're suddenly out of a job. Let's just, and then they get into a car accident. Let's throw that in there. Cause those are frustrating. Um, <laughs> poor person, right? Like your heart goes out to this person, but because of their secure upbringing, would they have the higher chance of bouncing back than say a foster kid who spent time on the streets and had a parent thrown in prison and another one addicted to alcohol? Which one would be more resilient and why? Yeah, Madria, I think you're right up the alley there with, with your assumptions that the experiences that we have early on in life, support that we experience, um, and the, the level of social support would really make a difference in terms of providing a building block to building resilience. It's very important to have a healthy start in life, and that's why so many researchers, including myself, are working with the early origins, like the the early start and start into a healthy life. And that includes not only physical health and mental health, but also a healthy environment 
to be raised and to grow up with and within and have healthy social interactions. And that not only is a learning experience for the brain, for social behaviors, for language learning, and all that we take up, our brain is like a sponge at that time. And we need to meet the critical periods and get the information into our brains during the appropriate periods and time early on. But we also need the social support to build resilience that then will last a lifetime. And I know so many individuals who had a lot of different experiences in their lifetimes, adversities, um, homelessness and, and violence and domestic violence and so many different war and other violent experiences, migration, forced migration, refugees. And I think I see over and over again that those individuals who are facing stress better and going through those adverse experiences and stressful phases in life better, that they often had supportive environments early on. Um, so that that is certainly something to to be considering but on the other hand like i talked about ancestral stress and we cannot turn back the clock and same for the early life time um that we had we cannot go back in time so what what about that you know if someone didn't have the supporting family environment that we all wish for and hope for and we're working on having mothers who feel less depression and fathers who are more involved with families and so on that's all great but what if we don't have that necessarily and i think there is always ways to build resilience later on and to put that actually into the perspective of the inter and transgenerational stress that i was talking about i think that is a a glimpse of hope here too because we actually we have the saying, I come as one, but stand as 10,000. So we actually are not just what our own lifetime presents us with, but what our ancestors presented us with and prepared us with. Ooh. So the positive oh, note on the transgenerational inheritance of stress resilience is that our previous generations also gave us ways to deal with stress. So even if we didn't have the early support in our lifetime as a child, for example, our ancestors also have a saying in this. And I think there is a lot of, like we talked about the epigenetic programming, we call that kind of programming, sounds very technical, but <laughs> these are epigenetic factors that can prepare us well to deal with stress. So I think this also plays a role. It's not just what we experienced early on in childhood, but it is even a larger dimension. It goes back generations. And I think that always gives me a lot of hope because that includes so many aspects of cultural support that we have as well and supports that our ancestors had. And the stress response therefore is not only determined by the early childhood, but it goes further. And so hopefully I can only hope that because we're here and that already shows we have a great deal of resilience because the evolution post or, or put us put us through uh, immense stressors in mm -hmm. our 
humankind history yeah. we had so many stresses to deal with and so many lions chasing us down in previous generations and yeah. so many wars to go through and we're still here and i think from what we've researched in terms of our stress response we should look at it in a very positive way because the stress response initially is there to help us deal with emergencies and with threats and deal with our fears and face them and go through adversities really well we should trust our trusty bodies mm -hmm. our trusty physiology yeah. because this has developed over millions of years and it helps us to deal with immediate stressors better. And I always think of that, you know, when I study stress and it puts me into this anxious mood and thinking, you know, I'm stressed now. Am I doomed <laughs> now? Will I get a heart attack tomorrow? But then I turn it around and say, well, you know, Neanderthals made it. Uh. They, had, they had really bad times and they had... <laughs> rods and famines that lasted for generations sometimes and they made it i will make it <laughs> yes you will and you are here today so there we go and i'm here today too so my roommate and i are traveling to europe and i didn't know much about the history of greeks i actually watched a short little documentary about it just to kind of know about it and they are a really resilient country holy doodle they invented language any form of letters put together to form words and sentences is basically formed of greeks and they also invented numbers so you know this number represented a pair this represented a quadruple or a triplet things like that and so really they have been wiped out they have come back and then they develop the spartans and then the olympians and who's excited to go there and make a little fitness workout video where the olympians used to train i am because you don't <laughs> get any more epic than that but i think about greece and you know they had this propensity to succeed despite you know the land where they were kind of sucked because at that time it wasn't cultivated for their success there were no olive trees that grew plentiful and all that it was dry it was crusty other places had sea and fruit trees and even stones of different kinds but they they had to go the hard way and then they learned to prosper and so when I think of resilience I think of Greeks but I also watched a movie called Homeless to Harvard and I forget the main girl's name Elizabeth something Liz Murray I think is the name and it's a real person it's a real story so she had the bad childhood and then she was homeless at a young age. She had to take care of herself. And then she dropped out of school. She went to like grade eight when she was like 18 or she worked her way through her classes. And then she ended up finding sort of a teacher believed in her, saw the potential and acted on it and then helped her walk her way basically from homelessness and, you know, small education to, to Harvard. Like, that's Harvard. Hello. And she got on there in a scholarship. And I'm like, wow, if only everybody was rescued like that. Dwayne Johnson got kicked off the CFL team. He played for the Calgary Stamps for two days or something like that. And his contract, his income, every, his dreams and everything was over. So he could have stayed with his parents at the age of 28 um, and moped a bit. He probably did. But then he headed off to L.A. with some change in his pocket after buying his ticket. And now look at where he is now. And he 
found somebody who helped him on that walk to success. But I'm wondering, like, for a homeless person in their 40s, you know, Lethbridge has a high homeless population. And part of my nursing experience was developing a program for them that me and my classmates introduced to Alberta Health Services. And apparently it's going to be used, but I'm sure we're not getting the credit. It's being used. That's the important part. And it opened my eyes to the awareness of resources for homeless people. But it's like, could a homeless person, how could they find that sort of mentor that kicks their ass? Like, I'm sure Dwayne Johnson's coach was not a gentle pat you on the back kind of guy. And the the teacher that took Liz Marie under his wing or whatever and helped her through everything, she had to work hard. She had to do the work. He had to do the work. But they had that coach and those coaches were working just as hard to facilitate their success. And they celebrated the successes. There was no envy, apparently, from those people that helped. And it's like, how could a homeless person at the age of 47 without their teeth and, you know, no education, how could they find something, someone like that? Like, how does, because it does foster resilience to have that mentor and that daily kick in the ass. Like Steve Harvey had a friend that did that when he was homeless in his car for three years, this friend would call him up 38 days in a row. Hey, Steve, it's going to be a great day. Steve's like, yeah, okay for you. And then day 38, because his friend's like, man, I've called you 38 days. Like, why do you even answer the phone? And that was kind of a turning point for him. How can somebody, if they are not from here or, and they've just had shit after shit after shit, how can they find someone like that? How can they find healthy support? You're right. I think this is definitely a very critical um, aspect to have someone who believes in you, who has time or who just supports you in one or another way to mentor to to coach someone through hard times is incredibly important in our lives in everyone's life and we all have ups and downs and to have someone who believes in you at that time when we're in a down period how how, how long that takes it can take short a short period of time or longer and to have someone who believes in you is definitely very important and who keeps prodding you too. Like often when we procrastinate or we, we have fear or afraid of approaching someone, someone who's prodding you and say, okay, just do it, do it. Don't think it over too much. Don't ruminate, just do it and move. And I think um, when I look at examples of resilient individuals it's also being proactive and reaching Mm -hmm. out and seeking support but I think that is more easily said than done sometimes when people are in this low state and it might be depression or it might be the chronic stress and it might be fear or social anxiety or whatever leads to that that someone feels more trapped in their situation it's very hard probably to reach out and approach someone to ask for help. And I can so appreciate and imagine that. And then it's very difficult when we are not aware of the needs of of someone. It can be our next door neighbor who is suffering right now and, and is waiting for someone to reach out to him or her. And we don't know. I think that is a very very difficult situation but if someone can be proactive in any way reaching out I'm sure that there's kindness because that's what I've experienced that's what 
we give back, if we have ex it experienced, I think that's how our community works. And I have so many students who want to give back to their community and want to volunteer. So they are the, the ones to go and reach out. I love to volunteer. I'm reaching out, but it's only when we're aware of someone needing help that we can give it. Mm -hmm. If someone has a hard time reaching out, asking for help, that's really what needs attention. How can our social social system have a net, cast a net that is fine enough to really catch everyone who's not reaching out for help, where there's uh, no great. response coming and sending someone actively to seek out those that are in need so they are not falling through the social net. The trouble with that is because there's tons of people who refuse to help themselves. And that's why I actually ditched out on nursing because um, ultimately, like I, I had trouble in the program and it just was not a good fit, I think. And then I was out and then in, then out and then in, and now, now I'm out and it's like three times and out. I have a book that's written by a Canadian soldier that was kept prisoner in the war, World War One, And um, he wrote that book, Three Times and Out. First time he ran away, he got, you know, an orange jumper with a star on his back. Uh, second time he ran away, he got put in isolation and marked as a, a danger. And then third time he ran away, he and his friend knew they had to get away this time because they would be killed on sight. So they got out and then he wrote the book. And I was kind of like that with nursing, I feel like it was so negative. But one of the things that really deterred me from registering as the nurse is the lack of willingness of nurses, especially, but also patients to accept the help that's there. Like nurses know better than to treat the young badly and to treat people like shit. They know better. They teach it. They preach maleficence, benevolence, confidentiality, justice, non-judgmental, but they do not walk the walk. It's hard because that help is there for them. And some patients, you have to concede and let them hurt, which really sucks. But I had results with some patients very rapidly, which was surprising to everybody, including myself, where I talked to them like a person. And I said, listen, there is help here. People are trying to give you this help and you are making it difficult for us to help you. And yes, you are learning, you're losing a skill, you're aging, you're getting older and things are going wrong and it's scary and it's sad. And you, you may not get those skills back because of your age, but there are things you can do to make it easier. And one of those things is to eat. So here's your dinner. I'll be back to check on you later. And I went back and sure enough, she'd been eating and she was talking and smiling and she's thanked me for talking to her like a real person. Um, and so she accepted the help that was there. But there is a degree of refusal in homeless populations. Um, this woman from Mexico, I did a mission trip there and built a house for a family. And one of the things we did, um, because we were very fast with building the house, it was fun. Um, we went to this dump and people lived in the dump and grew up generations. And I remember seeing a, a man grab a head of cabbage that had been discarded. It was brown and slimy and he bit into it like we would a fresh apple. And I still remember that and like feel the disgust at the smell and the sight. And that for him was normal. 
that's all he knew was the taste of rotten food. And this one Mexican woman had been offered a government job. And I can't remember what the position was per se. Anyways, but a government job, like even here, we're like, ooh, a government job. You get a high wage, you get benefits, whatever, whatever. It's the same down there too. And she turned it down to stay in the dump because that was all she knew. And so there are probably some homeless people that are offered a direct ticket out of their crisis and they don't take it up. And that, that I think a contributing factor is this lack of co-regulation that happens at a younger age In healthy families, you know, the child screams and cries, especially as babies, because everything is new. And so therefore new is scary. And so babies cry when it's not necessarily always critical and that's where the mother's discernment is really hard I've had friends that have kids and when they cry I'm like (gasps) you know it's just that instinct to flee at the same time but also gravitate towards the kid because it's crying and it needs something and can I give it to them and what do they want but when a person doesn't have that and they don't have the insight to say this is what I'm lacking how can I get it then they're gonna they're gonna lose out altogether So I'm wondering how adults can sort of regulate their own brains to increase the likelihood of positive resiliency, because there's negative resiliency too, I think, in that uh, tolerance, right? You become resilient to the effects and then you need more, or you become desensitized. Like there's people, there are people in the world that do intentionally hurt people. They're just that kind of person and they become resilient to compassion, to positive things that would stop a person from intentionally harming someone. But I'm wondering how can adults regulate their brains? So can you just kind of quickly describe some of the neural structures, just in simple terms, because not all the listeners know a lot of neural stuff, some of the neuromodulators or neurotransmitters, which are the hormones that go in. I know oxytocin is important for bonding and, um, you know, resilience is, is, probably a depletion or an adequate amount of that that can be developed at any stage as well through serve and return say physical touch things like that because you have to start with yourself you can't wait for somebody to help you you can seek it out and people will help but if you're not helping yourself at the end of the the day those people will go away or harm you in return i don't know (laughs) um So I'm wondering how can a person beginning with themselves begin to regulate? Also, another side note, I know this is a long blurb, but (laughs) um, a side note for this is that I realized through my upbringing, when I realized my own lack of co-regulation, but also there was like some starvation and deprivation and stuff in my childhood, all the way until I would say about probably the age of 16 or 17, I grew up essentially until about the age of 16 without adequate food. And I'm realizing now, because I know some of your research centers around um, TBIs, traumatic brain injuries and things like that, as that does play a part in stress, but I'm realizing that starvation like that, long-term starvation, basically 16 years, is a brain injury. And so, yeah, I can eat now at the age of 30 and, you know, eat healthy meals and feed my brain now. But I'm wondering, like, how can a person with the effects of long-term stress like that, you know, not necessarily just that because other people have other long-term stresses that are are chronic. um, How can they begin to modulate their brains as a mature adult to counteract it? 
unloved foster kids will say typically have a smaller head circumference. They, they typically have smaller brain structures. So I, I did a project at the university was on a flight and I was really bothered <laughs> by the severity of my own situation. Um, so I wrote down things that I thought was different about my brain versus another person. So I was starting to notice some social differences and difficulties in myself that were sort of unexplained. And now I have the explanation. So there are studies that do show, you know, the amygdala might be overactive in me because it was that way since birth and the lack of co-regulation, which I was now able to coin as a term that I can now begin to see. So I'm just wondering if you could kind of give like a brief talk about those kind of injuries of negative stress on the brain and how an adult without that coaching could really begin to help themselves to restructure their own brains. Okay, um, well, in a nutshell, since you already talked about nourishment, I mean, a healthy, adequate diet will not only feed the energy resources in our body, but also feed the brain. And we need both to deal well with stress. We need the energy in the body, the mitochondria and so on. They need to run well so that we can recover and bounce back from a stress as quickly as possible or show resilience if the stress lasts. Same for the brain. Plus dietary components can actually add a lot of modifying agents to how we feel and perceive the world. Like serotonin, there's, for example, uh, we say tryptophan is the as precursor for serotonin. That is a content in food, which, for example, you find in Turkey. Uh, we have folic acid, which you find in many vitamin supplements, but you have that also in green types of food and in artichokes. And that's actually a component that provides those ingredients that we need for the epigenetic modification that we talked about earlier in the podcast and hmm. so on and so on. There's a lot of um, dietary components that play a direct role of how we feel. And a lot of people say even a piece of chocolate could do a miracle for them, right? So it can make German us chocolate. feel good. And um, so on that note, sure. Uh, I think that's something we can do, but also good food is expensive. And I think for someone uh, in a situation that don't have, and they don't have a lot of money at their hands to get good, um, a good diet is very difficult. We see that this is a big obstacle already. Um, plus the, the brain's development, what you were talking about, like early childhood adversity that can lead to um, underdevelopment of some brain areas or overdevelopment of other brain areas, it will definitely need to lead to um, different connections within the brain. Um, in terms of overcoming that entirely, I think that is challenging, to be frank, because if the, the brain develops at an enormous rate during early development as a child, and to make up for it as an adult is difficult. As an adult, we actually have um, brain plasticity at a quite impressive level, but not the total makeover of a brain area. That is actually not possible at this kind of magnitude. So for example, to talk about certain brain areas involved, we have brain areas that are very dense, very high 
in uh, glucocorticoid receptors. Those are the receptors that sense the level of stress hormones. And one of the areas with the highest density of these receptors, so that makes this area very vulnerable to stress and responsive to stress would be the hippocampus. And we see that if there are very high levels of stress during fetal development before being born, but also early childhood, and there's a constant over um, expression or over high, really excessive levels of stress hormones in the body, then the hippocampus could be a little bit smaller than in a non-stressed um, brain because it will actually become desensitized in some ways to ward off those effects of constant excessive toxic levels of stress. And so to make up for that, it's very difficult later on in life. But we know that brains are very resilient and brains have an enormous degree of plasticity later on. And we can actually deal with adversity in so many ways by nourishing the brain on many different levels with other means, with other beneficial experiences. And so we've talked about the amygdala that could be larger because that is producing fear. We have hippocampus that could be smaller. We see that cortical thickness could be reduced with early life stress, but we can also see no matter where we are coming from and what our brains look like, and everyone's got a different brain. And we see actually that brain size in itself is not correlated to intelligence and and you know mental health necessarily so there is so much else that determines the personalities that we have and the persons that we are and there is again there could be dietary components there could be interactions with the environment how much exercise we're doing how we are interacting with with the environment you talked about traveling i think this is a great way to build resilience to travel to experience different types of food like tzatziki to experience different places and cultures and be immersed and also learn about cultures and their history like you say the adversities that others have encountered will make us connect with each other and I think that helps this connectedness, the feeling of being understood by someone who had similar experiences and even coming from different cultures. This is great. And I think this is a great example of who we are as a Canadian society, because we come from so many backgrounds. We're still a relatively young nation. And this is what I really love about Canada, that we all come from different backgrounds and we talk about our experiences. And this is enriching for the brain. So what we study also in our research is what we call an enriched environment and how this enriched environment can build resilience and can overcome past adversity. And so, again, I think this means that we are seeking out these opportunities, that we are proactive, we travel, we, we talk to others, we engage. And to mention another factor um, that is very in, 
important here is oxytocin that you actually have mentioned because this is what we call the bonding hormone or this is maybe the candlelight dinner equivalent to the stress mm. response because it makes us feel at ease it down regulates the stress response if we have high levels of oxytocin this is a hormone that is expressed when we engage with someone socially that if we share um, an eye gaze if we look into each other's eyes if we share a hug or if we get a massage or we cuddle the child we have this experience even when we in with our pets. There are great studies, actually one in the top journal in Nature was published of um, interactions of a pet owner with their dogs. And mm. what was really curious is that the dogs looking at their human yes. increased oxytocin levels but also the same happened for the dog owner when they looked into their the eyes oh. of their dog. It also increased oxytocin levels. So this is a bi-directional relationship that the pets benefit from the bonding with the human, the humans benefit from the bonding with the pets. And I think we know about therapy dogs on yes. campus at the University of Lethbridge. We do have therapy dogs whoever would want to could go and cuddle a dog cuddle a puppy great i see them also at the calgary airport for example i see several oh. dogs walking around you can go cuddle them hug them and it will relieve the stress that you have when you're traveling or getting on an airplane relief uh, we talk about social enrichment and i would definitely include animals in there because um, this is a very important bonding experience, plus um, what we realized, and I think as a Western society, we often become very detached, not only from our family bonds, we spend too much time in front of a screen, we yeah. watch TV, we have social media, it's not like a real interaction in three-dimensional space, but also what many people realized during the pandemic is their bond with nature. And we actually have something that is a science coming from Japan called uh, forest bathing. So forest bathing is actually became a quite young science, but it's built on traditional knowledge that spending time in nature can actually heal the stress that we are feeling and heal the brain. And I think it is for us to reconnect also with our heritage, with where we're coming from. Spending time in nature is something that balances the mind and the body and gets us out into fresh air. And I think we're kind of forgetting about this potential that nature has for us because we're watching relaxing scenes on screen oh, yeah. but even going out in front of the door is very helpful that for example at the university of alberta there was a really interesting study where they looked at stress responses that students experienced and they had divided the group of students into two different sections so one group of students was asked to use the tunnels underground to go from one building to the next between their courses and the other group of students was asked to take the route overground through a park-like area and experience trees and greenery and fresh air. And they found out that actually the group that was going through nature and 
through the open spaces. They were feeling more relaxed and they actually did quite well in tests. And so it really had a very good effect all around on enriching their environment, providing them with something else, but also bringing them back out into, into nature. And I think that's important. This is something that doesn't cost much money. We all have an outdoor area somewhere close. And even if we can't afford some of the fancier treatments that we think would boost resilience, I think going out in nature has helped a lot of people during the pandemic. I've heard that everyone and their dogs wanted to go to the Rocky Mountains That's the past two years and they were completely overloaded with cars and visitors, which, you know, might not be always the best for nature out there and for the national parks, yeah. but it really was a strategy that people picked up on that really helps relieve the stress and relieve worries and get them reconnected with nature. Jewel Kilcher is a singer. I basically grew up with her music. She had a podcast that was on Joe Rogan. And I remember listening to it because I knew she had an abrasive life story and stuff, but she shared some details about it. But one of her saving graces outside of music is nature and that actually inspired a lot of her music as well so it fueled it it made a world of difference there in terms of healing because you hear the sounds and it's different when you're listening to it online digital um, but the sound of the water you can hear the musical nuances in it you can hear the chord changes the pitch differences the trees and then you hear the similarity of how the wind sounds like trees sounds like people's applause sounds like many people talking at once sounds like water running it's just interesting um and it is very 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 restorative lowering the blood pressure um engaging your you know your visual cortex more because when you stare at a screen you tend to zone out or you're only looking a certain way but when you're in nature you use your whole visual field um, and your auditory fields as well. So it's very, 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 very healing. So Japanese forest bats, hey? <laughs> That's right. And on top of that, it's also aromatherapy. So it really triggers, stimulates all our senses to be out there. Uh, there were studies saying that trees send out pheromones or um, chemicals that really make us feel relaxed as well. So it is definitely a very multidimensional experience to be spending time outdoors. Oh, I'm excited to go to those beaches in Greece. I hope they smell good. <laughs> I'm sure they will. And you'll have the ocean and there's nothing more soothing than the ocean sound. Start with vision boards, people. Vision boards help. <laughs> So basically, just to kind of give a quick summary, um, we'll have to do another podcast again, though I love talking to you about this stuff. But uh, to wrap up for today, I'll just say, you know, like, so basic forms of co-regulation that probably help lifelong, so you can be 75 or you can be five, is to basically bring to yourself some sort of rewarding thing. And the common grounds are animals. If you can't have animals, go to nature. Nobody can not go to nature. You can go to nature. You can get out. You can find a park in the city. You can drive to a field nearby. There is nature nearby. And then that healthy diet. And of course, because I'm a personal trainer, fitness. Exercise is really great because it strengthens the connection between the corpus callosum, which is that middle part that connects your 
neural hemispheres, the two halves of the brain, it basically connects it and exercise definitely helps to strengthen that. I wonder if food does too. Food would too, wouldn't it? Because it would help your brain to regulate because you there's dysregulation when you're hungry. When you're chronically hungry, you can't even thermoregulate, which is also, that's in the thalamus, right? That's right. And then we talk about hangry, right? Because oh yeah, hangry <laughs> makes great. people angry for sure. And it is comforting to have good nourishment yeah. in inside and outside. And hydration and hydration is very important. Yeah. Also for brain health. I think sometimes we, we overstate like how many liters we should drink. I'm not yeah. sure always how possible that is, but there are actually studies that for cardiovascular health, which also supplies our brain with oxygen and um, nutrition, it is very important um, to have a healthy water balance in the body. Plus actually um, water maintenance is being regulated also by the adrenal glands, um, which interact very closely with the part of the adrenal glands that also makes the stress hormones. So I think, you know, maintaining a good water balance is very important. There were studies saying, or suggestions, how could we know for sure, but there were notions that we could live 10 years longer if we paid attention to our water intake. Mm -hmm. And I think one of the things too, it seems like a fad. I know it sounds bad, but you know, Joe Rogan says stuff in his podcast that people don't like, and I'm going to be one of those people. I'm sure in my other podcasts, I speak quite abrasively about certain things too. So I'm just going to say it. It seems like a fad that everybody has to have some sort of mental disorder or something's wrong with them. Or if an adult feels like they're, you know, he's losing his sense of control in something, he suddenly says he has OCD and it's like, you know what? Fun fact, OCD doesn't suddenly appear when you're 35 because you're stressed. It, it'll show up lifelong, like fun, just, just a fact. So stop with the labels, people. Labels don't help. Just get to the root issue. I'm feeling insecure because of this. I'm feeling a loss of secure, um, you know, a sense of control because of this. I'm afraid of whatever. And get to the point of it because that will guide your next actions. Truth is a very, very, very good source of proper guidance. And it starts with, with yourself. And it's just nice to know that certain daily things that you can do that seem small. These are all things that can really improve life quality. And they're right in the hand of almost everybody. You know, the world is everybody's oyster. Anyways, um, I think we'll wrap it up there. But it's just good to know that at any age... There are things to do to help yourself co-regulate or I guess self-regulate in healthy ways versus coping, which is not healthy self-regulation and co-regulation is people dependent, but we'll have to do another podcast that focuses more on that because that's kind of things that I've been learning lately. And I like hearing the science behind things and figuring out how it works and that it's applicable to everybody. So at the end of the day, if you if you're one of those people and you're out there listening to this somehow, or you know somebody and you want to help somebody, if you're a foster parent, or if you have a friend who's been devastated, the good news is any brain is helpable at any age. And the person has to be willing to receive that help. And the help does not have to be expensive. It doesn't have to be some person talking to you and getting you to move your eyes one way or another, or shocking you or giving you pills. Just 
take your cat or dog, go for a walk. Maybe your dog, because the cat will probably run away and that might make you sad. Go for a walk. And uh, if you don't have a dog, if you live in an apartment where you can't have a dog, make friends with people who do have one and go visit them. Pets make life better. They really do. So thank you so much for coming, Berlinda. Thank you so much for making this work. I will keep in contact with you. And are there any kind of last minute things that you want to share before we wrap it up? Oh, I think it's all good to keep a healthy life perspective, appreciate the small things that we have. And I think that will blow up the smaller happy things and make maybe some of the larger unhappier things seem smaller. Yeah. So I think we need to always keep a good perspective. Yes. And be proactive too. You know, like you gotta, you have to reach out to people. You have to feed yourself healthy. It starts with you. You can't uh, expect handouts because then you won't actually grow and learn how to cope. So, alrighty. Until next time. Mm -hmm.